Hey, Unchained listeners. As you know, it's hard keeping up with the fast-paced world of crypto, so we've got just the thing for you. Subscribe to our free Unchained daily newsletter at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. You'll get the latest crypto news and original articles from our reporters, as well as summaries of other happenings and bullet points, plus our meme of the day, all curated and written by our amazing team. It's still your no-hype resource for all things crypto, just in newsletter form. Sign up at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Again, the URL is unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Unchained, a podcast engineered by Fractal Recording and produced by me, your host, Laura Shin, a Forbes contributor covering cryptocurrencies and blockchain. Thanks for tuning in. Last episode, I asked you all to fill out a survey I'm conducting so I can improve Unchained. I got a number of really interesting responses that are already shaping my plans for the podcast going forward. Plus, I learned a little bit more about all of you, my, surprise, surprise, mostly white, mostly male listeners. <laughs> if you want to have some input into making the show more to your liking, please go to surveymonkey.com slash r slash unchained, or find the link in the show description of this episode. Again, that's surveymonkey.com slash r slash unchained. Also, if you've been enjoying this podcast, please share it on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, or with any friends or colleagues who might be interested in the show. Also, please rate, review, and subscribe to Unchained on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts, as that helps get word out about the show. I'd like to extend a big thank you to our sponsor, OnRamp. Branding isn't just a logo. Your brand is the essence of who you are and what you offer your customers. OnRamp is a full-service creative and design agency that provides its clients with concise and exceptionally designed branding, websites, and marketing materials that will resonate with your audience, affect its purchase decisions, and ultimately grow your business. You can learn more at thinkonramp.com. Today, I have two guests, Brock Pierce, co-founder and managing partner of venture firm Blockchain Capital, and Stan Moroshnik, CEO of the Argon Group, an investment bank for the emerging cryptocurrency and token-based capital markets. The two collaborated on the recent crowd sale of Blockchain Capital's BCAP tokens, which represent shares in the firm's third fund, which is called the Blockchain Capital 3 Digital Liquid Venture Fund. The crowd sale, or initial coin offering as they're often called, raised $10 million for that fund, and the BCAP tokens resolve a long-standing headache of venture capital, the fact that the investors, usually called limited partners or LPs, typically have to lock up their capital for 5 to 10 years before they see any returns. In contrast, BCAP token investors will be able to sell their shares on a secondary market after 40 days for international investors and after one year for U.S. investors. It looks like people were eager to participate in this new form of venture capital as the BCAP token sold out within six hours. Welcome, Brock and Stan. Thank Laura, you for, thank having, you for me. having us. Before we dive into the meat of the discussion, I thought our listeners would be interested in hearing that one of the most exciting interviews I've ever had in cryptocurrency was when I walked into Blockchain Capital's offices right as Brock's phone number was being hijacked. And for those of you who don't know about this, uh, this was kind of a, a big trend. Uh, it, it's still going on. Trend is actually the wrong word. It's a phenomenon um, where people's phone numbers are being stolen by hackers uh, to the hacker's own devices, which and then they're using those phone numbers to get access to cryptocurrency. Brock, have you ever had such a dramatic interview with a journalist? Yeah, I mean, the timing uh, <laughs> was interesting. And uh, I have to thank you. I had a good resolution, but far better than almost everybody else, thanks to you. Yeah, so uh, my phone was not working well, and sometimes the reception in my office is a little less than perfect. And so uh, right as you're coming into the office, I, I, I asked my partner, Brad, I'm like, call my cell phone. And uh, uh, 
uh, it rings and I hear it go straight to a, a voicemail for a magic jack. And I go, well, that's not my carrier. And, and I'm obviously very familiar with, with this issue. And I've been warning people in a lot of my public speeches, you know, the importance of two-factor authentication, that we're really going to need something like three-factor authentication. You need the separate device because it's so easy to steal people's phone numbers. But my phone number wasn't in my name, so I felt I was pretty secure from, uh, you know, this uh, phone sort of porting uh, social engineering, you know, hack. Uh, but when my phone was taken, yeah, uh, you happen to be popping into the office right then and there. Uh, fortunately, uh, things worked out well for me. I was able to contact the exchanges and have my uh, you know accounts frozen across the board. The hackers got absolutely nothing from me. I was able to remove my phone number from more or less all of uh, my important accounts in a matter of minutes. I caught it quickly, but normally it takes at least at that point months before you get your phone number back. Uh, I was actually very fortunate to have you in the office. Um, you reached out to T-Mobile um, for a quote, uh, which uh, uh, got my situation escalated to the office of the CEO and president. And uh, T-Mobile bent over backwards to get me my phone number. They worked with Sprint uh, and uh, things were resolved. And my phone number is now held by the president and CEO's office. So if you walk into a T-Mobile store and you ask about my phone number, I don't even show up. <laughs> the regular customer service people can't um, can't see me. So thanks to you, I've got like this incredible service and I got some gifts from T-Mobile. Well, we have a lot to cover today, especially around the BCAP token news. So Brock, can you begin by telling us how you heard about Bitcoin and end up co ended up co-founding Blockchain Capital? Yeah, well, I've been, uh, call it in the digital currency or virtual currency space since the, uh, the late 90s. Uh, it started out in, with video games, a game called Sanctum, which was like a Magic the Gathering or Pokemon meets chess. And um, they sold virtual packs of cards. And you would trade these cards with other players in the same way that you would in a baseball card shop or a comic book store. And... Um, you know, it was very clear in that instance to see that this intangible object had value and the insight being that the intangibility of the object didn't make it any less valuable. Its utility was just as much as it had been if it were physical and in some ways arguably better because you could play with people all over the world versus just those in your you know, local town. And so I contacted the game company and said, I'd like to buy your virtual packs of cards in bulk and uh, I'd like to basically run a single store. You know, I want to replicate what exists in the analog world digitally. And they're like, yeah, that makes sense. And so I started that business up in the late 90s. And then with things like Ultima Online and EverQuest and World of Warcraft and Second Life, I, uh, I jumped into that business. And I was kind of the world's largest market maker for all of these virtual economies. I built up a supply chain of 400,000 people in China that were playing video games professionally to mine digital currency, again, in games like World of Warcraft or Second Life. And I've done tens of billions of dollars of business in that in that category. And so it was only natural that Bitcoin was on my radar from you know more or less the beginning. But it wasn't until 2012 where I saw sort of critical mass forming momentum building. And I, I finally actually fully appreciated the the novelty of the uh, uh, the technology um, in a way that I didn't in the earlier years. But that's when I said, OK, uh, you know, I was asked by people, what do you think of Bitcoin? And I said, well, that or something like it is the future. I just don't know if the future is now or 25 years from now. And so uh, it was in 2012 where I said, OK, uh, clearly the future is now time to drop what I'm doing. And I've been working full time in the space since started a bunch of companies, done a lot of stuff in mining, done things kind of all over the place. But yeah, my, the principal thing that I do is uh, we've been we built a fund 
uh, a leading fund in the space, and we've been having a lot of fun with it. So actually, I wanted to go back to what you were saying about these gaming tokens. You said that you also had people mining those, like in China. What does that mean? Because of course I know what mining means in Bitcoin, but I don't know what it means when it comes to a video game currency. Well, yeah, I mean, we're the, the original miners. <laughs> when we talk about proof of work in video games, it's a, it, it, it has a whole new meaning <laughs> or an original meaning. And that is that the uh, virtual currency, the swords, the shields, the horses, the castles, you know, these sorts of things inside of these gaming environments had value. And essentially, I was making a market for time. There were people that had too much inventory on their hands and they wanted to pay rent or buy beer, right? And then you had people that lacked discretionary time but had expendable income. And in essence, I was a market maker between you know those two groups of people. And so the, the, the people in China, well, the problem is I had more buyers than I had sellers. And so I eventually had to look at the world and say, okay, where is the biggest population of people that have a high propensity to game? Uh, and it was pretty obvious to me that it was China. And so I just jumped on a plane and moved to China, not having any contacts, opened up the, you know, the yellow pages and got an office and hired a recruiter and actually built up uh, a few thousand employees there between Hong Kong and Shanghai. You were paying people to play video games, to collect these shields and horses and swords and et cetera. And then you were selling them to people who didn't have time to play the game to collect them so that they way, that way they could purchase them to employ in the game. Is that what I'm understanding? Yes. And I, I, I employed <laughs> hundreds of thousands of people, hundreds of thousands of individual people to play these games, to do that, to meet tens of billions of dollars of global market demand. You know, I managed, you know, what looked like an altcoin market of hundreds of currencies across hundreds of servers and different games. Uh, uh, my main investor was Goldman Sachs uh, principal strategy, their prop desk. I think I was their first private investment because they looked at their currency trading desk and they said, wow, I'm managing more markets than they do. Huh. That's really interesting. And I this find that I was like 20, 21, 22. I was a very young guy back then. Huh. Yeah, I, I really like that story. And I like kind of some of the parallels to the way the market is, um, I guess, burgeoning or evolving now in cryptocurrency. Um, and I actually then one thing that you sort of alluded to, but I think in that story that you were telling about how you decided in 2012 to get more serious about it, is that when you founded Blockchain Capital? And if so, um, I know also, well, I think also Brad and Bart are your co-founders, Brad and Bart Stevens. How did you hook up with them? Well, so Bart and Brad, um, <laughs> uh, yeah, so I, I didn't start with um, uh, blockchain capital. The first thing I was doing was mining because I was very concerned about, you know, regulatory risks and, you know, is the government going to try and shut this down? And I know orange is the new black and all, but um, I've just never thought that was my color. Um, striped jumpsuits don't work on me either. And so um, <laughs> the first stuff I was doing is a lot of things around mining. You know, I had, uh, I think, 10% of the batch one Avalons. And, you know, most of what I was doing was pretty stealthy in the beginning um, uh, until I got kind of comfortable with the idea that, uh, uh, you know, let's say the U.S. government disliked Bitcoin, uh, the world's a big place and its actual, its market opportunity is really in the developing world. So, you know, if you're smart and you're careful and you're well advised, in terms of legal counsel, uh, you can do really innovative things in this space and, and, and you can sleep at night. And in part, that's what our ICO is attempting to do is uh, hopefully provide some better guidance for people in the future. But um, uh, the first thing I did is I'm an entrepreneur by background. So I built a lot of companies. I've run a lot of companies, you know, uh, you know, kind of call it 
early stage CEO kind of founder type role. And uh, uh, when I was looking at this industry, I couldn't figure out what company to build. You know, I could build one of the Me Too sort of, you know, basic infrastructure plays or something different. And I saw so many interesting opportunities, I didn't know what to do with myself. So I decided to start incubating companies and I was building a new company every two months. I started Tether and GoCoin and Blade and buying Mount Gox and a bunch of different sort of businesses that I was kicking off. Uh, I was starting a company every six to eight weeks. And then uh, I got up to running, you know, eight, 10 companies simultaneously in a kind of call it executive chairman type capacity. And uh, I, I realized this isn't gonna scale either. And that there were still more things that I wanted to participate in, more exposure that I wanted. Uh, and I could have evolved into more of an accelerator that looks like Boost, or, or I decided that the best way to get exposure to the overall ecosystem was as a fund. And so Bart, Brad and myself started this. Um, and I got to know them going back to my video game days. So uh, Bart and Brad were running a $700 million hedge fund when uh, uh, we started Blockchain Capital. They shut that down to do this full time with me. Um, but uh, they were also, you know, for the last decade prior to that, the biggest investors in the video game industry, you know, in terms of public companies. They were the main investor in Tencent when they went public and, you know, all sorts of interesting gaming companies around the world. And so they were playing World of Warcraft. And, uh, you know, I'm going to try and uh, tell the story the way they do, but they were playing World of Warcraft and they were like, wow, we're paying Blizzard $15 a month each uh, for our accounts, but we're paying this company IGE and these other businesses hundreds of dollars a month to buy virtual gold and things. They're like, this is kind of an interesting business. I think, you know, this company might be bigger than Blizzard. <laughs> um, they're like, let's go figure out what this industry is, who does it? And they went and found the five or 10 biggest most popular websites to, to buy World of Warcraft gold. And then they started making a research project of it and looking up who owns these companies, looking at domain registrations and things. And what they figured out is I owned all of them. And I'd already rolled up the <laughs> entire industry. And so they, they actually cold called me, you know, like 14 years ago. Um, and they're like, all right, we, we think what you're doing is awesome. We want to meet you. And they came down and they offered me, you know, a $20 million investment uh, in my company. I'm like, uh, thanks, that's that's a sweet offer, but no thank you, I can do a lot better. And they're like, what? <laughs> and then I, I, closed, uh, I closed an $80 million financing uh, uh, a few months later, led by Goldman Sachs um, <laughs> under substantially better terms, but they ended up investing in that round. And my partner, Brad Stevens was on my board. And so in 2012, I went to my board of directors for what was the rate, one of the remaining businesses. I sold my media business to Tencent. I've had a, lot, a number of exits in that space, but um, uh, we had the, our main Korean business left where we were doing a little over a billion dollars a year. I had about 700 employees in that remaining business, um, which was one of the last assets left of that kind of era of my life. And Brad was on the board and, I, and along with Goldman Sachs and Oak Investment Partners. And I said, hey guys, um, we, we're in Korea. We've got 90% market share. The industry's flattening out and there's not really a lot of room left for growth. So we got to either expand into other territories um, uh, uh, and start making that kind of expansion move or we have to start getting into other product verticals. Um, I said, I want to get us into Bitcoin. And Goldman Sachs and my whole board, like, including my partners, in the case of Brad, everybody laughed at me. <laughs> I'm like, Bitcoin, are you kidding? <laughs> I'm like, no, I'm actually very serious that I think that there's a big thing happening here and we need growth. And I think Bitcoin is potentially that big market for us. I said, I want to buy Mt. Gox. And they're like, why? I go, well, uh, Mark Corpellis and the management team is there is maybe the worst there is and their technology is horrible, but they have all the market share. 
we have the management team and we've got the technology, so let's go buy this thing. And they're like, okay, this is a joke. <laughs> and they basically didn't entertain the conversation. I made an argument and said, hey, I'm going to send you guys some research about what's going on in the Bitcoin market and why I think that there's potentially a big future here. And in our next board meeting, I want us to reevaluate because, um, you know, I want to have an informed conversation. You, you, you clearly are you, you're taking this as a bit of a joke and it's, it's a very serious conversation. So three months later, we come back, you know, board meeting starts and I'm like, OK, I, I want to buy Mt. Gox. And uh, they still laugh at me again. I'm like, didn't anyone read the research that I sent you? Did anyone read any of the and, and the, the response essentially was no. Well, the, the person from Oak then went on and led the circle investment and about a lot of interesting things coming to Goldman. But uh, uh, I got a hold of my partners, Bart and Brad. I'm like, you run hedge funds. You invested in, you know, virtual currency video game companies. You're, you know, you know, kind of Silicon Valley royalty. Um, how uh, how is it that and you're young that you didn't review any of the stuff I sent you and you're still, you know, dismissing this idea. I go, it's okay to disagree with me and think that Bitcoin is stupid and that buying Mt. Gox is a bad idea, but it's not okay to dismiss my idea when you've done no work to actually understand the market opportunity I'm presenting to you. I'm really disappointed, guys. You know, I, I can understand Goldman Sachs's response, but you, you, you guys know better. You should know better. I'm disappointed, and they, they, they actually were so affected by this conversation, they dropped what they were doing, and they started contacting every economist, cryptographer, computer scientist, and they went into a deep dive because I, I basically said, what's wrong with you? Uh, and their deep <laughs> dive into, um, into Bitcoin came back with, Brock, we want to shut down our hedge fund and, and, and come build a venture fund with you full time. <laughs> and, and that's actually- Vindication for you. I don't tell this story very often, but that is the origins of how the, the firm got started. And then I went to Bobby Lee and Charlie Lee and Matt Rozak and a bunch of friends of mine in the space. This was in 2013. I said, hey, I'm going to pass the hat around and let's just start throwing money into all of the cool deals. Um, and uh, uh, let's see what you know happens from there. And and now here we are five years later. Nice. Yeah, well, um, I'm glad that you mentioned Bobby and Matt because they are both people who were previously on the podcast. And my next question actually was about these companies that you guys have invested in. I'm sure, as you kind of mentioned in the beginning, you know, there were a lot of companies that maybe were a little bit less legitimate or, or just you know, not really good investments. Um, but several of your portfolio companies have now become some of the top firms in the space, like Coinbase, Chain, Zappo, Ripple, Bitfury, BTCC, BitGo. I mean, there's just a long list. So how did you guys discern what would be good investments when it came to vetting the different startups in this industry? Well, the, the main thing you know, I think as a as a venture capitalist, or you know, from our perspective, at least I can speak for myself, and I think my partners, the most important thing that we look for is is ultimately the founders. It's the management team. You know, you're you're investing in people first and foremost. Ideas and everything else are secondary. And uh, in the list of companies that you've named, uh, the founders of every one of those companies are, you know, extraordinary, you know, people doing amazing things. And you know, the sort of person that you look at, you talk to and you say, I think you might change the world. And, and those are the people that you're trying to support and back. And, uh, you know, I, I think we've done a pretty good job of picking, you know, the, the, the best possible people in the industry. And, you know, there's a few deals I'd like that we would be in that we're not in, but I think in terms of overall portfolio, we, we back the best people in the business. 
Okay, so I also want to hear a little bit more about what it was like investing in these startups during this period up until you had this idea for the BCAP token. So what kinds of trends did you start to notice in terms of what entrepreneurs or developers were doing and and also how that might affect the venture capital industry? Yeah, I mean, with, between each funder period, you, you essentially have a vintage. And, you know, the 2013 and 2014 and 2015, each of these years you know, had a different trend. And so blockchain capital was the first venture fund in the world uh, set up to invest in this area exclusively. And uh, in the beginning, it was a lot of Bitcoin companies because that's all there was, right? In 2013, there weren't, I mean, the term blockchain wasn't even used very often other than in the case of the blockchain wallet, (laughs) blockchain.info. It was mostly early on Bitcoin companies, the basic infrastructure, in the same way the internet wasn't very useful until you had, you know, an internet browser and an email client and a search engine and content and things to read and e-commerce and things to buy. You know, you needed all that, that, they call it the bridges, the roads, the tunnels, the basic infrastructure for, you know, it to be useful. And so most of the, you know, early investments were in, you know, these kind of now, um, you know, iconic um, Bitcoin companies. I'd say that was the, the sort of first phase. And then it became, how do we use Bitcoin technology, you know, sort of the blockchain, the enabling technology to re-architect the, uh, the financial world and, you know, the chains and, you know, that, those types of companies that emerged. And then the sort of next wave is, well, what else can you do with this technology outside of financial services and starting to look at media and all of the things that we're doing today. And we we still invest across all of them. I mean, Bitcoin and cryptocurrency, the digital currency side of the business was in a bear market for a couple of years. And so we, we stopped investing in new companies in that area because I didn't know how long the market would be bare. Obviously, we're in a, a phenomenal bull market right now. But in that bear market, uh, a, a, as a VC, it was, you know, we had a lot of companies and those could all end up being starving babies. And, uh, you know, you, you, you stop trying to take on new uh, companies that may need money <laughs> because between, you know, DCG and Pantera and Finbushi and all of us that invest in this area, you know, collectively, we don't have a, a that big a pool of capital. We do not have enough money to support these portfolio companies. We rely in a large part historically on the later stage generalist VCs and, you know, the VC market, you know, said, hey, OK, I've got, I've got a Bitcoin or a blockchain bet. I've got one or two. I haven't seen any exits. I'm not seeing massive revenues being generated in some cases. Market's a little bit flat. Uh, you know, we were in a, we were in a tough time. Uh, and so we were focusing on, you know, kind of the most emerging of things. And uh, you know, we invest across all of it now. And then obviously with ICOs, um, you know, I was a founding board member of the first ICO, uh, Mastercoin, which was the sort of uh, the project that architected what has become ICOs. And uh, uh, and I've been a major investor in, you know, a lot of the uh, most important ICOs. I think we owned like 10 percent of MadeSafe uh, when it went live. We put 500 Bitcoin into Ethereum's crowd sale and owned almost, you know, call it a million Ether at day one. Uh, and, you know, I've been doing the ICOs, but in our first two funds, we had some large LPs, you know, kind of uh, big family office types that um, said, uh, we, we, we've got Bitcoin exposure, um, so I don't want your, you know, the fund buying things like Bitcoin and Ethereum. And I said, that's fine. I would never actually buy those types of things. Well, at the time, Bitcoin uh, with, with my fund. I don't need to charge you a fee to buy Bitcoin. Uh, I'll show you how. <laughs> Let's start by taking you to Coinbase. <laughs> and <laughs> if you want to buy more and you want to secure more, I'll show you how to use BitGo. And I don't need to make money off your buying a Bitcoin. That you can do on your own. I don't feel justified in charging you for that. 
But unfortunately, in fund two, we were prohibited in our docs from buying crypto. Crypto. I remember like just pulling my hair out when uh, Ethereum was at a dollar, and I'm like, I'd like to make the largest bet of our firms ever made in Ethereum at a buck. I want us to go buy, you know, or I, I said I want us to buy a million dollars worth, and we couldn't get the legal approval to do it, and couldn't, you know, I probably should have gone and got waivers from everybody, but that would have been, uh, you know, a 40 or 50 X return in a pretty short period of time and fully liquid. The IRRs on this venture fund would start to look like Chris Sacco's. Uh, unfortunately, I mean, I, I, we did just fine and I, I made that money myself, but, um, uh, I'm, I'm really excited by our, our new funds ability to invest in ICOs. And I'm, I'm kind of bummed out that, uh, I wasn't able to do this on behalf of my, my my limited partners. I my job as a fiduciary is to get up every day and make money for people, and it's really uh, uh, disappointing when I'm prohibited from doing so because of uh, uh, a term that was intended to prevent me from buying Bitcoin, uh, not other things like Ethereum. But uh, we fixed that with the third fund. This takes us up to this time of the BCAP token. So let's actually turn to Stan now. Stan, can you tell us your background and how you learned about and became interested in cryptocurrency? Yeah, absolutely. So, so most of my background is in um, investment banking and capital markets. And so I spent most of my career, I started Morgan Stanley and then uh, worked across um, New York and London and Moscow and saw the emerging markets um, develop and become very active overnight. And, and so I followed uh, Bitcoin sort of on and off since about uh, 2012 and um, uh, even played around with, with miners at home and, and kind of the nerd in me likes to tinker with this stuff, um, but never really seriously considered it because I saw how quickly uh, complexity was growing, how quickly miners were evolving. Um, and always thought it was uh, something that that's sort of a world away. Uh, but then early last year, I started paying attention to, um, you know, what, what's become known as the ICO market. But I saw um, early stage companies engage in really interesting capital markets activity that you normally, um, you know, you, you normally don't, don't see. And, and I saw all of those dynamics playing out. And to me, what are some really examples well, uh, watching um, Ethereum earlier than watching the Dow and watching how much interest it garnered and uh, how unique of an instrument it was and um, the uh, the depth of the market for, for a compelling asset like that. So uh, an ability to raise $150 million in a market that at that time was less than $15 billion in terms of both Bitcoin and everything else, that was, um, that was pretty meaningful. And uh, the willingness of the community to invest from the grassroots and support a project like that, um, not not only through kind of um, open source participation and participation um, in the development, but also with you know with their dollars, that's pretty compelling. Uh, and so, as we saw uh, more and more uh, products coming to market, more and more ICOs happening. What was clear to me is that you kind of needed an institutional player to bridge this market, right? You had very deep technical teams uh, taking effectively a, br a break from their product roadmap for three, four, five months to uh, dig into securities law to try to understand uh, what, what jurisdictions can I do this in? Can I not? Do I need to set up a foundation? Do I do this in Switzerland? Can I, I'm sitting in the U.S. Can I do this in the U.S.? And does the SEC have jurisdiction? And each one of these companies was doing this over and over in addition to each of them individually trying to find investors, each individually trying to find 
uh, and build a platform for the distribution of the ICO, each individually writing their own smart contracts. And it was obvious to me just from, from the traditional capital markets that what you need is, a, is an institutional-grade service provider uh, that helps these companies bridge the gap between um, between issuers and investors, helps them run a, a clean process um, that's, that's, uh, that starts with diligence, starts with a clear um, story for, for the coin, um, how investors benefit, how the company benefits, how the community gets to participate, how you think about the governance uh, going forward, what are the implications for the company you know, 18, 24 months from now when they go to look for new financing, and then engage directly with investors uh, both the, those that are smaller ticket investors, but also kind of the bleeding edge uh, family offices, high net worth individuals, folks that are already uh, holding some Bitcoin and are thinking about this asset class. And so um, last year, uh, sort of around this time, we started the Argon Group, which is, you know, which is our vision for a uh, digital um, investment bank focused on this new tokenized cryptocurrency capital market. Um, and I had the, uh, the fortune of meeting Brock um, in the fall of last year as we were kind of experimenting with various legal structures and how to create a, uh, a clean, clear, compliant, and legal path for an ICO for a company that wants to do it um, as a true, uh, true equity security or true security versus doing it as a, a use coin or a, 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 you know, a more traditional structure. And um, so we're based in L.A. and Brock, uh, Brock spends a lot of time in L.A. And so as you talk to the uh, L.A. community and you know, talk to folks in San Francisco in the Valley, when, when the conversation turns to cryptocurrency uh, and Bitcoin, it's always, it always comes back to Brock. So he, he is um, at kind of uh, the epicenter of this ecosystem. And, and so um, I met him through a friend. He came over to the office and we had – um, you know, I think we spent a couple hours together, and um, like his insight and vision for this space was was so compelling that I, I thought we kind of have to work together. And so, a little bit, you know, sometime later, he um, asked me to come up and, and meet um, Bart and Brad, and, and we had a really interesting conversation about doing you know a first tokenized venture fund. Um, part of that thesis is um, is about the capital market in general. Look, there's uh, there, you know the, the market is large. A lot of people are holding core positions in in Bitcoin and Ethereum and some of these other coins, uh, but it's really a market that's starved for product. And a lot of those uh, the holders don't actually want to exit crypto in any way. They don't want to go back to fiat. They want a product offered inside um, the uh, the crypto market. And 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 that, that that's a compelling idea on one side. On the other side, the the fund is purely focused on blockchain and cryptocurrency. And so it makes perfect sense for them to lead the innovation in this space, disrupt themselves, and offer a product to their constituency. Because if, if you were a, a part of the broader cryptocurrency co uh, community, um, or just uh, uh, in, in general, if you're trying to make a bet on blockchain now, there's almost no way to do it. Right there's, there's there's no public companies there's no uh, no comparables you can't get access to um, uh, to to the elite venture funds that typically invest in this stuff and so there's there's really not a mechanism for someone even in the community to really participate uh, in a traditional sense and so creating this product as we talked about it made you know lots and lots of sense and so what is your business model? 
Uh, so our business model is, is kind of a very traditional investment bank, and, and so as we build it, we we help um, issuers issue shares, we help investors uh, invest in tokens. We're building a platform for um, for distribution of, of tokens, very much like you know, sort of uh, a traditional online brokerage type platform where you have investors. Well, that, but what that, I mean is, do you yeah. take fees from both the group that's doing the crowd sale as well as the investors in the crowd sale, or are you charging only on one side? Or we're, we're charging only on one side, uh, which and, is and it's, it's on the it's on the issuer side. Okay, but the the vision for the business is, is much broader. It's about um, building products that that help you invest in this space. So, what we did with Bcap, and we'll talk about that in a little bit, is it's essential. It, it it's offered as a security, and so to, to purchase a security, especially if you're in the U.S., you need to be uh, to go through an email and KYC process, and you need to be accredited. And so, you need to have a pathway and a, and a platform for people to do that. And so creating these other tools and products to to help this investment ecosystem is part of sort of the broader vision. Okay. Yeah. And I just want to clarify for people who may not know these terms, AML, KYC, it's any money laundering and know your customer rules and regulations. So let's take this moment to have a short break for an important word from our sponsor, OnRamp. And afterward, we will discuss the BCAP token. The best companies in the world obsess about branding. Killer branding will transcend your company and strategically and competitively position you in the market. Done well, a remarkable brand will affect buyers and their purchase decisions and give your organization a voice that sets you up for long-term success. OnRamp is a full-service creative agency that helps its clients maximize brand awareness, gain market momentum, and accelerate growth. Whether it's branding and identity for a new startup, redesigning an existing website to generate traffic and leads, or executing a custom design project or marketing strategy, OnRamp will get your organization strategically poised for the future. You can learn more and see examples of its work at thinkonramp.com. I'm speaking with Brock Pierce of Blockchain Capital and Stan Moroshnik of the Argon Group. Brock, so tell me how Blockchain Capital came up with the idea for the BCAP token. Well, I, I, again, uh, I was a founding board member of, of MasterCoin, which was the first ICO. So I've been very much in the ICO market since, call it, day zero. And watching it closely and you know, through 2013, 2014, 2015, it wasn't you know, that exciting. I mean, it was interesting, but it wasn't like a trend. The model and the the the, the idea was out there for everybody to imic, imitate, but, you know, venture capital was still the, the, the main model. And what happened is the money plateaued in terms of generalist venture capital coming into the sector in like 25, 2015, 2016. But the number of entrepreneurs coming into the market continued to accelerate. And so there was this this dynamic of a lack of capital, um, you know, to, to support all of the you know, incredible entrepreneurs and things that were happening. But, you know, where there's a problem, you know, uh, and where there's a will, there's a way. And so last year we had 64 ICOs raving, raising over $100 million. And that happened, I think, more out of necessity. You know, in, in retrospect, it's easy to look at wh- why this happened and how the trend emerged. It was out of out of a need. Uh, there was a void that needed to be filled. And uh, uh, the quality of the ICOs and you know, my desire to invest in them uh, was such that it was very important that our next fund was going to be investing in tokens. And uh, uh, I was also concerned about the structure of a lot of the, of lot of the ICOs. Some of them you know, I felt were you know, using very convoluted structures for the purposes of you know, um, you know, creating use coins to circumvent securities law. And 
I wasn't comfortable uh, with it. And my, my view is that this can be done a better way. And so I'd already been selling my, my partners and, you know, toying with the idea for quite a while to, to do something like this. And when I met Stan uh, uh, and saw that this was a team of, you know, Wall Street, you know, uh, deep bench sort of uh, uh, bankers that had the right securities and legal backgrounds. And I said, OK, this is this is a group of people that I can get comfortable with doing something, you know, that's, you know, pushing the boundaries of what can be done. And so uh, it was already on my plan to do it. And I said, Stan, well, I'd, I'd like to be your first deal. <laughs> I said, I, I, wa- I want to do this. Um, it's something I've been thinking about doing and you seem like the right people to do it with. So let's let's go. You know, it, it, it required obviously a lot, a, a lot of time on our part and obviously a tremendous amount of you know, legal resources to get comfortable that we've architected a model that we that, you know, hopefully we've standardized and that you know, now others can copy. And will the fund invest both in startups and in coins or yes. and if so, then what's the break uh, and what's the breakdown? Uh, the answer is yes. Um, right now, I still I'm not a fan of most of the ICOs. I think we're in a, a bit of an ICO bubble, and I think that that uh, the deals are raising capital at too early a stage. I don't think a white paper in most cases is sufficient, um, uh, and I think there's still a role for you know VCs and firms like ours for the the, the near term to basically provide for seed funding. Uh, pre-seed, seed, maybe even in some cases Series A. But what's really happening is blockchain technology is making it much more efficient for companies to essentially go public. And instead of going out and raising later stage venture capital for a Series B and a Series C and a Series D, it's my view that you know now companies will be going public at a Series A and Series B level using this technology. And it's, of course, going to start with our endemic community. But I think as, as investors, you want to see at least a minimally viable product, get past proof of concept, demonstrate that the management team can execute before, I think, you know, giving it to uh, uh, call it the crowd. So let's talk about this language that you're using about them going public at an earlier stage. Um, this is exactly the kind of language that I hear a lot of the entrepreneurs in this space are trying to shy away from. Um, you know, they're trying to de-emphasize this idea that what they're offering is a security. Um, so let's both uh, talk about that as well as you mentioned earlier that there were all these different things that you needed to do in terms of uh, legal and regulatory issues that you needed to resolve. So can you describe what things you did in order to um, to get past those hurdles to, in setting up the BCAP token and make sure that you weren't running afoul of any SEC rules or anything like that? Well, I mean, the, the main thing is just looking at the world differently instead of trying to avoid being a security, instead of you know trying to avoid you know, characterizing yourself that way, you, you have to ask yourself the question is called, can, can I do it differently? You know, can we look at the regulatory framework and, you know, there's the Jobs Act and all these wonderful innovations that have been happening uh, to lower the bar uh, for people to be compliant in the sale of securities. So this is, you know, a trend that's been underway. It's very easy to imitate what's been done before. So, you know, with MasterCoin, we created a foundation and the ICO capital went into the foundation, the foundation that was responsible for financing the development and Ethereum and everybody else were more or less copied our model. Um, uh, and and most people didn't spend the time, do the work, didn't hire the lawyers to, to spend serious money. Ethereum did. And they were very late in launching. And Vitalik was very smart to do it the way, along with the rest of the team, the way that they did. They said, we're not going to rush this. We're going to make sure we've got proper attorneys and we've been well advised and we're going to do it right, not fast. You know, so, Brock, can you just describe for me 
like about launching this foundation and then having the ICO money go into the foundation. Describe for me why those seemed like the right choices to make from a regulatory perspective. Well, back then, uh, yeah. as the you know sort of founding board and whatnot, we didn't even get compensated. No one got $1. We all had to invest uh, uh, under the same terms as everybody else. So that we, we were probably the most conservative of anyone. And I still felt very uncomfortable after the fact. Um, uh, you know, I'm, the, the structure is definitely, you know, bleeding edge and we won't know, you know, uh, uh, and if I look at, you know, an ICO on an individual basis, some of them, I would be very nervous, you know, if I, if I were involved as a principal in any of those projects, uh, uh, and because so the they is, look too much like securities, like, is that what you're yeah. nervous yes. about? Yes. Okay. And then, but do. then if you, if you structure it where you're a foundation, then why is it that that is f- deemed to be safer? Oh, I'm not sure that it, that that makes it any safer. The foundation structure is just saying that the money is going into uh, uh, an entity to support the development of the open source software. So, I mean, that 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 doesn't provide for a uh, I think a regulatory um, uh, uh, sort of comfort that doesn't provide for that. I mean, you have the Howey test, which is you know the 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 main thing that people try to analyze is it a security or is it an uh, an app coin or a use coin, and, uh, and and you're looking at those sorts of Things And in some cases, you get to look at each of them individually. But the main thing that we did differently is we said, instead of trying to circumvent securities law, is it possible to acknowledge that you're a security? Can you do this differently? Can you, instead of trying to dance around it, what if you just walk through that door? And the answer is you can. Uh, the JOBS Act and the things that have been going on here in the United States to um, to lower the bar for these types of things to occur has, has happened. And that's what crowdfunding is. Crowdfunding is the first major step in the democratization of venture capital, things like AngelList. What we're doing uh, and what the blockchain is able to provide here and this overall just ecosystem of participants is an environment where we can take it 10 times further. And in, 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 our, in our case, we used regulation you know, S&D exemptions. What are those? Well, these are two exemptions um, uh, under the SEC. Regulation S allows you to do things internationally and allows for us to raise money from international investors. Regulation D allows for us to raise money from uh, uh, U.S. investors, uh, but we're limited to accredited only and we're capped at 99. But those, so the big limitations, what we found out is we can do this, uh, but the downside is you have to do KYC. Um, you know, no one had done an ICO where you KYC'd every investor. Uh, you know, we had thousands of people sign up to participate in uh, uh, our crowd sale. Um, and clearly the evidence is in, the precedent's been set, you can do KYC. And I would advise everyone doing an ICO at this point, everyone uh, to do that. Most of your legal, m- most of the, the mistakes that I think are being made is, you know, taking money from the wrong places or the wrong people and running afoul of rules in that area. And KYCing your users gives you a, an ability to, basically not take money from people you shouldn't. And how many investors did you have total? Uh, I think in the ICO, Stan can correct me, we had roughly 1,000 investors um, in the deal. And I think we had for probably 5,000, but unfortunately, you know, uh, the we, we, did it, we did a very small raise uh, and we kept a, 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 a cap in place because we were breaking, you know, I think a lot of new ground. Uh, and the idea was not to maximize. I think if the Dow had said, we're going to cap this at 10 million, you know, the Ethereum ecosystem would be better for it. Just because you can raise more money doesn't mean you should. Um, right. And so we, we said, we, this, we know this is an experiment. We know we're, we're, we're trying to pioneer a bunch of new things. And the idea was to, to do something 
modest. Okay, yeah, and you covered these things so long ago, but just for listeners who aren't familiar with them, I wanted to flag that the Howey test, which Brock mentioned, was covered extensively in a podcast I did with Jerry Brito and Peter Van Valkenburg of Coin Center. I will refer to that in the show notes, but essentially it's a case, uh, the Howey something versus, I don't even remember the full name of this case, but essentially it is used often to determine whether or not an offering is a security. And there's four prongs to this. And then sort of a fifth, um, I guess, it, this wasn't a part of the case as far as I understand, but it's just a fifth test for whether something's a security, which Brock has referred to a few times, and that's whether or not something has utility. So for instance, if you um, purchase a membership in a golf club before the golf club launches, that's not considered a security because presumably you're purchasing it not because you think the membership's value will rise after it's after it opens but because you want to use the golf course um so anyway there's a number of these different prongs for the howie test which uh, peter and jerry went over in depth in that podcast and uh, the other thing that he mentioned was the jobs act which some of you may know it's a it's what it is enabling regular investors regular everyday investors to participate in crowd sales and um, and not have to be what's called accredited, accredited investors where they make a certain level of income, which is 200000 and above or have a net worth of $1 million or above. Um, all right. So <laughs> there's so much background that people need to understand to, to know all the reasons for these different regulations and how that affects the way that these tokens uh, will play out. But um, anyway, so I want to talk more about the BCAP token. I know that you registered the token issuing entity in Singapore. Can you guys describe for me what benefits Singapore offers? Yeah, absolutely. I, I, Singapore is one of the uh, few places in the world where th there's been a, uh, a ruling that said that tokens are not securities, they're specifically assets. Um, and so by registering uh, the issuing company in Singapore, um, it, it allows us to sort of achieve uh, local compliance in a very token-friendly jurisdiction. And what is that distinction between securities versus assets? It essentially allows you to avoid... Uh, all of the regulation, or not avoid, but that regulation isn't applicable to, to you in, in the context of selling securities. So, so, you, so everything that's that's typically in place in terms of disclosure and registration and filings, etc., all of that uh, applies to securities, but it doesn't apply to essentially assets. And assets is essentially, you know, things like like real estate or or hard hard goods. And so. Uh, by explicitly saying this is not a security, Singapore has removed a lot of legal overhang and legal complexity and executional complexity from um, from executing a token in okay, that jurisdiction. But I'm, I'm just a little confused because during this conversation, I thought that you and Brock were saying that what, why don't we be upfront about the fact that these are securities? And then now you're telling me that actually they're not securities? Well, so it's a it's a complicated legal structure, and and, and so the the nuance of doing it in, in in Singapore is it's the one place that's so far ahead of other places in the world that it's it's, it's done the work and it's now experimenting with uh, with these new tools, and so what we then do is we uh, because the fund is in the U.S. and and we're in the U.S. and a lot of the investments are going to be in, in the U.S. and in, in investors were addressing our uh, partly in the U.S. too, we then 
take that security and offer it in the U.S., as Brock mentioned, using the, the two existing exemptions under the Securities Act. And so um, he, he mentioned Regulation D that's been changed by the Jobs Act over the last five years, and that allows now things like general solicitation where you can advertise and talk about uh, the security that you're selling in a public forum. And, and so that's been a big change, and that's, that's a, a path of offering it to U.S. investors. Are you saying that the BCAP token, in a sense, is defined different legally depending on the jurisdiction? So in the U.S., uh, according to Reg D, you've offered it as a security, but then in Singapore, with the way the regulations are there, it's defined as an asset? Is that what you mean? Exa- that's exactly right, yes. Okay. Oh, interesting. Um, so I actually also wanted to go back to ask about the investors. I know you guys were limited to 99 investors and they had to be accredited investors in the U.S. First of all, can you explain why that was? And then tell me about who the overseas investors were, because if you had nine, it sounds like 901. Um, I'm curious to know kind of like where they came from. Yeah, absolutely. So so the 99 rule is actually specific to um, offering a fund, right? So, so there, there's another layer to BCAP specifically, unlike a traditional company, because it's a fund. And, and so that, so so it, it, it needs to exist under an exemption to the Investment Companies Act of 1940. And so to be compliant with that framework, you have to offer it to less than 100 people in the U.S. to not have to register as an investment company or a mutual fund or, or something along those lines. And so that's uh, that that's the exemption framework that 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 most of the professional investment firms use, uh, you know, like private equity or venture capital or hedge funds, and so the ninety nine uh, limitation came from that piece of the law, and then the accredited piece um, that you you described so well earlier uh, came from the Regulation D five hundred six C provisions um, uh, of the law, and so the interplay of those two is what created the U S dynamic. Um, and and so now shifting to, to the second part of your question in terms of where the investors are coming from, we we had um, you know a really broad participation. So uh, it's equally spread through Europe, through uh, through Asia, Latin America. We had some African investors, and so um, it, it was really kind of fascinating how global um, this uh, this market is. Were there any particular countries that were where it was more popular, and and maybe even that surprised you? Um, so there was there's actually a native in, uh, interest from uh, from Singapore. There was some interest from the UK. Um, uh, there was a lot of interest from from China, and and we we kind of knew this going in because we saw where the traffic was coming from to um, a lot of our materials and landing pages. Um, broader Asia and interest from Korea, and, and so um, I think uh, how interesting this is to an Asian audience was really uh, really compelling. Huh. That is interesting. Um, so, Brock, I've often heard you refer to this step that you're taking with the BCAP tokens as blockchain capital eating its own dog food. And I want to hear you kind of explain what you mean by that and also give me your thoughts on what changes you think this uh, BCAP token could unleash in the industry. Well, I mean, we're going to be in investing in ICOs. We believe in sort of the ICO market. Um, and so... Uh, might as well walk the walk, right? Um, and and do something. You know, the the goal of a lot of what this industry 
from my perspective, the goal is to, to democratize, you know, the financial system is, you know, one aspect of what we're doing and to, you know, enable equal access for everyone, um, you know, complete and total financial inclusion across all of, all of its um, areas. And it's part of the reason I was an early adopter of crowdfunding. I think I still have, uh, I think, the largest personal syndicate in Southern California on AngelList. We've syndicated a lot of deals. I believe philosophically crowdfunding and blockchain and Bitcoin are, you know, all – um, you know, working toward call it the same macro outcome. So uh, this is just the next sort of big leap in it. And then, you know, venture capital as a whole, I mean, VCs invest in innovation and disruption, but how often do they innovate themselves? I mean, the venture capital industry has benefited greatly from uh, technology and the internet, but their model hasn't changed at all. So I see how the venture capital industry is going to get distant you know, disintermediated, decentralized, disrupted. And so I can sit around and wait for some, I can wait for someone to come along and disrupt us, or, you know, we can choose to disrupt ourselves and cannibalize ourselves. And my partner, uh, Bart Stevens, uh, uh, after graduating from Princeton was at E-Trade back in the mid nineties and running Corp Dev and BizDub reporting to the CEO. And, you know, the E-Trade, Scott Trade sort of story of, you know, how the brokerage business in the 90s changed is always a very interesting one to me because you had a, a, a dominant big brokerage firm called Charles Schwab. And, you know, they saw these new emerging firms that were going to, you know, lower the fees in a big way. And they very smartly decided to cannibalize their entire business. They put themselves out of business. But as a result of having done that, the way that they, you know, danced the, you know, through the innovators dilemma is they still exist today as a result of that. And so I, I think I see how the venture capital industry is going to be disrupted by this technology. And, um, you know, I'd rather do it to myself. And didn't you say a lot of VCs have been calling you asking how they can do the same thing? Oh yeah, yeah, no. My phone's pretty much been ringing off the hook by uh, private equity people, uh, real estate funds, anyone with a general lack of liquidity. I mean, I have so many people coming to me now saying, "Can I do this in my industry?" Um, and I think the answer is it's going to happen. To uh, this is not a Bitcoin or blockchain specific trend. This is going to affect everyone, uh, the whole fund business, anything where there's an illiquid asset. And so it's starting naturally you know, with the endemic sort of industry and it's going to be a fund like ours, but, you know, in a matter of, I think six to 12 months, you'll start to see other things where on a Venn diagram, you have overlap amongst these communities, video game related stuff, you know, really advanced uh, 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 technologies, intentional communities. You'll start to see these waves, but um, we're the beginning of what will be a trend that I think is going to disrupt all venture, uh, all private equity. I think this is the beginning of uh, uh, a long story, but ultimately one that you know ends in this business never look you know forever being changed. And so both of you are pretty familiar now with the different regulations in terms of both crowdfunding and um, then, you know, uh, not wanting to run afoul of the different securities laws and things like that. So are there any particular ways in which you would like to see U.S. regulations evolve so that they're clearer for entrepreneurs and developers and also then on the other side, the investors in these different crypto assets? Yeah, no, I think uh, more regulatory clarity. I mean, the Jobs Act obviously was a, a, a good step in the right direction, and all of the crowdfunding companies are, you know, helping to make progress here. Um, you know, unfortunately, you know, I mean, most ICOs today, the advice I would give is to follow basically the model that we did, which is unfortunate because it, it basically excludes most Americans. You know, we're limited to 99, and they have to be accredited. So the the, the reality is the the American investor base um, is the one that is disadvantaged 
because of uh, 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 regulations that could probably be improved. Um, I mean, I mean, they, always they can be improved, uh, and hopefully they do. Um, you know, these are in, in most cases we're talking we're talking about like the 1940 Act. Most of the laws we're referring to were things designed, you know, nearly 100 years ago. Um, so yes, I think we could probably benefit from you know improved uh, and more modern regulation. Um, and you know, this is a, a process. I'm pretty sure from the side of the regulator, they think that they're protecting the investors because uh, we certainly know that there are a few coins that have been launched that have been outright scams that the SEC has gone after. Um, And then there are others that fall kind of into more of a gray area. So um, whether or not U.S. uh, investors are at a disadvantage probably depends on where you stand on this. Um, Well, so... Where can people learn more about you and your work and get in touch with you both? Well, I, you, you know, uh, go to blockchain.capital uh, or blockchaincapital.com. Both of them will get you there and you can learn more about the firm and get in touch with us. I'm pretty accessible everywhere. I'm around the world pretty much constantly. So I'm all over the world and always happy to meet, you know, anyone in this space that's, you know, you know, part of this movement of, you know, changing the world, uh, and I think for the better. Um, uh, but you can find me on Twitter at Brock Pierce. Um, I'm on most social media. I use every sort of messaging app. Uh, I try to be as accessible as I co- possibly can be. And, uh, you know, we want to invest in every great company. So, I mean, if you're an entrepreneur out there and you're looking to build something and you want help, I'm, I'm, I try to be as accessible as possible and I try to help everyone. Stan? Yeah, so we, we're at uh, argongroup.com. Um, uh, lots of information on the site, case studies, and uh, our view on Bitcoin as a, a true emerging you know, uh, alternative asset class. Lots of information about the ICO space, some statistics. We put out a, uh, a weekly market update on what's going on with the various things in the market and um, developments, pricing, statistics. Uh, we have a great monthly newsletter uh, where on Twitter and Facebook, um, in Telegram and all the major ICO-related channels. And if um, if you've got uh, a compelling business that's that's a part of this ecosystem and you're thinking about how to fund it, finance it, um, how to work with uh, other partners, or you're thinking about M&A opportunities, um, come and talk to us. I mean, we I think we have a lot of interesting expertise. We have strong partners. Um, that have spent you know a lifetime around this space, and um, we're happy to help and have a conversation. Thank you both so much for coming on the show. There was just so much to unpack. It's such an interesting thing that you guys are doing. Um, so I really appreciate you taking out this time this week. Um, okay, well, thanks listeners for joining us today. Before you switch off this podcast, don't forget, go to surveymonkey.com slash r slash unchained. Let me know who you are and what you want to see in the show. If you're interested in learning more about Brock and Stan, check out the show notes, which are available on my Forbes page, forbes.com slash sites slash Laura Shin. Thanks so much for tuning into Unchained, which comes out every other Tuesday. Please share the podcast with friends and on social media. And remember to review, rate, and subscribe to it in iTunes or your preferred platform. Thanks again for listening. Thanks again for listening.